the state is in crisis in terms of being able to manage challenges from the economy to migration to the environment to a more philosophical dimensions of what the state is about in terms of what kind of community does the state represent or protect, care for. You are listening to The Sovereigns, a podcast based in the University of Cambridge, where we ask ourselves, should we reimagine the state? My name is Tanita. I am Christina. And I am Aditi. And we will be your hosts for this season of the podcast. Welcome to The Sovereigns. Traditionally, Europe has been a predominantly Christian space. Regardless of the form that Christianity took, it has embedded deeply as the guiding principle of the Europeans, manifesting itself through art, architecture, literature and every single aspect of the European life ever imaginable. But nowadays, Christianity in Europe has been pushed under the rug. The separation of the church and the state contributed to the vacuum of sort of moral constitution, which used to be an indispensable part of the European identity, both in public and private life. In other words, Europe lost its identity. And this confusion has become even more visible in the last few decades, with the growing confrontation with other religions, which have stronger more manifested value systems, especially Islam. In many cases, European states have increasingly responded to religious claims with a sense of fear and hostility, which is reflective through the rise of various right-wing populist groups and the resultant coercive state policies from the French wheel and Burkini ban to the recent Austrian attempt to ban headscarves in schools. Could there be any legitimate justifications for these policies? Or are they merely an attempt at regaining the lost European identity in the face of the current existential crisis? In this episode, we will explore the questions of religion, secularism, state identity, and beyond. Today we have with us Dr. Sarah Silvestri. She's a senior lecturer in international politics at the City University of London and uh, currently an affiliated lecturer at the Department of Politics and International Studies here at the University of Cambridge. Her research interests are really interdisciplinary. She has worked in different areas of religion, politics, public policy, with a particular focus on Muslim political mobilization in Europe. And she's worked extensively both in the field of academia as well as policy. Uh, we're very glad to have you and thank you for talking to us, Dr. Silvestri. Thank you for inviting me. So just to begin with today's topic, how religion and state see each other, when we were discussing uh, the topic of this episode amongst ourselves, the first thing that we remembered was the Burkini ban in France in 2016, which had led to this huge outcry on so many levels worldwide and for so many reasons. Although the Conseil d'État, the French Administrative Supreme Court, struck down the ban, the whole episode really grabbed global attention. Uh, what was interesting was the French government's justifications to that effect, you know, from security reasons to 
religious cultural extremism to preventing the undermining of the french ideals however this sort of incident uh, brought to fore and it came with a quick succession with the much larger controversy surrounding the whale and the other religious symbols in france as well as a lot many european countries uh, and it brought to fore this very contorted relationship between religion and state so taking from the french example to a continent wide scale how does the larger european community particularly the states view religion do they perceive religion as a threat to their existence in any way okay um the western world and in particular europe has a conflictual relationship with religion um because over time over the centuries in particular since the 16th and 17th century onwards um a process of secularization has happened so uh the current uh, um suspicion that we um can see among european countries in particular towards islamic manifestation of religion have partly to do with specific suspicion in relation to uh the values and the practices associated with islam and i will talk about that later but there is also another side of the story in that european countries have a problem with understanding religion uh they have a sort of schizophrenic relationship as i call it with religion because uh religious values and uh, religious uh, identities are part and parcel of the history of europe if you look at the big contribution that christian thinking christian philosophy has has had in the shaping of uh, the legal systems and of the nation state and the establishment of major institutions civil society and state institutions in europe but because of secularization all that christian background has gone in the shadow and now european countries are convinced that the current secular liberal democratic systems uh, exist and can sustain themselves only if they keep religion at bay um so the emergence of political mobilization of identity politics in particular emerging from minority communities in particular within muslim minority communities in europe creates shock waves in the mindset of the average european and even more so in the policy makers who are trying to keep law and order according to um, an abstract notion and also idealized notion of the secular paradigm of separation between church and state then in addition to that we have to come to terms with the fact that there have been incidents of political violence carried out by individuals and groups who allegedly do so in the name of islam so then there is a second layer of suspicion towards religion that is specific to the emergence uh, of islamist extremism uh, of political violence and so on but um so when muslim communities um mobilize for anything and when uh you see the emergence of the rebirth of particular religious practices such as wearing of various styles of wearing the veil for muslim women this is seen with uh fear by the policymakers because they see in that religious symbol in that piece of cloth a double symbol of threat one is the threat to the secular system and the second is the threat to 
security because um, um, they um, consider links with the teaching of particular radical groups that try to impose the veil onto Muslim women. Sarah, you, you talked about the, uh, the division of uh, religion and state and uh, you termed it as keeping the religion at bay. Uh, so would you say that uh, secularism is the absence of religion or is it actually religion itself a little bit? Oh, um, uh, there's tons of publications on the notion of secularism, the contradictions of secularism, the religious origins of secularism. Um, and, you know, there's philosophers, legal scholars, political scientists and anthropologists that have been writing on this. And basically, secularism, there is a sort of agreement that secularism is an intellectual device that was created by the West in order to counter religion. So in a way, the idea of secularism cannot exist unless you also conceive of religion. There is a duality there. And secularism has not existed always in history. It's really an invention of um, Western political thought and Western philosophy starting um, in the moment in which um, it was felt that religious institutions or religious authorities were sort of undermining the independence of state institutions and basically it was it was a way to keep um, to protect uh, the state from uh, interference of, of, of religious values and religious bodies. Um, there is also plenty of research uh, ongoing on the plurality of secularism, on the varieties of secularism that we can witness in society. Um, there's a professor, um, a famous professor called Eisenstadt that wrote a, um, an important article in, in 2000 around this. And basically he was trying to shake the idea that secularism as separation between church and state or between religion and state is in its perfect format in Europe or in the West. He was trying to show how in different parts of the world, different cultures, different societies, different political systems have managed to develop patterns of secularism that diversify each other. And for instance, the Indian model of secularism is quite prominent again in the literature because in India, Secularism does not mean exclusion of religion. It's actually it's understood as being the level playing field for the practice of religion. Even in Europe, even in the West, <clears throat> uh, countries don't agree on how they conceive uh, and also on how they um, organize in terms of jurisdiction their understanding of secularism. For instance, there's a huge difference between the French understanding of secularism and the British one. In Britain, we have a, a state church and a secular state at the same time. In France, you have the system of laicite, which is meant to be um, absolute separation between church and state. But in, in an either country, this is understood as preventing religious practice. In both cases, um, secularism is understood as the um, separation of religion from the state, in particular in the French context, uh, but in order to allow the private practice of religion. Mm. And the French obsession with the burkini, with the, with the veil, uh, with the headscarf debates, is connected with the fact that um, 
in in the French constitutional understanding of what is liberty, of what are the key values of French identity, of uh, liberty, equality and fraternity, those values in, in their mindset can only be upheld if you privatize religion. Not if you abolish religion, if you privatize religion. Because then you can guarantee the equality of the citizens. So the perfect French citizen cannot overtly express her identity in religious terms. Or also it's her uh, ethnic identity, if, if anything. Because in the French mindset, in, in the French mindset of secularism, secularism is the level of neutrality where, which enables you to guarantee the respect of the other and the equality of the citizens, citizens in front of the law, provided that there is no um, fragmentation of society in religious terms. So you can have your religious identity, you, can, you are perfectly allowed to have your religious, to follow your religion, to uh, go to worship, to respect uh, a fast or whatever, but this shouldn't interfere in what is considered the public sphere. Now, the problem is that that French understanding of this complete uh, net separation between the two is actually impossible because it entails a misunderstanding of how religion works. It, it understands religion as something that only happens in the private sphere. Whereas if you look at the theology and the political theology of various religious traditions, you will discover that they always call for an application of your beliefs, of your practice in your daily life. Not only in terms of what you eat or what you wear, but also in terms of translating the values in which you believe in your daily actions at work, in your choices in the political field. So it is really an abstraction to imagine that religion can be separated. Uh, between that like, you can establish this wall of separation um, because in a way it it undermines the possibility of religion to exist in a meaningful way for communities. You coined a very interesting term there uh, about how the state envision itself to um, have an equal society and for it to become neutral in front of in the face of religion. But then we, on the other hand, we also know that, if the state actively prescribe certain um, practices of religion, maybe it intentionally wanted to be neutral, but then of course only certain people or religious groups will be most affected by it. It will then create a negative or a stigma perhaps, or association towards these religious groups will then render them um, unequal in front of the society. Uh, in a sense that they may have more risk than other religious groups, perhaps more established religious groups in that state uh, to be to be conceived or perceived as um, negative or bad people. It's even more than just negative people. Um, in the in the fundamentalist understanding of secularism, there are actually authors writing about fundamentalism within secularism. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, there is a um, demonization of religion uh, because religion is assumed to interfere the perfect legal order, or perfect political order. And not only that, not only to interfere, but to disrupt 
to dissent from the legal order. For instance, the idea of the fact that Muslims believe in Sharia law is perceived as a big threat, not just because Muslims can have their own community, but because if you take um, seriously the idea of Sharia law, it provides you with a worldview, with a cosmology, with a, an alternative legal order compared to the secular Western understanding of international relations or of a particular constitution. So there is a, um, a notion of dissent there um, that is attached to the idea of believing in Sharia law and therefore being a Muslim. Now, if you are a student of religion, any scholar of divinity will tell you that actually all religions have their own legal traditions and their own values that shape an alternative, uh, not a substitute, but a sort of parallel worldview that enables people to, um, for a, to follow particular moral guidelines. And uh, for instance, um, in Christianity, you have canon law, you have uh, the Bible, you have the commandments, and they're also key principles that, if taken seriously, should shape every level of a Christian life. Um, but because Christianity became diluted in the Western world over time because of the process of secularization, um, the sort of dissent element inherent in Christianity has been forgotten. And the policymakers and those that are not really expert or knowledgeable of the foundations and the um, organization of religious uh, communities and religious values, they think that Islam is the exception in calling for an alternative uh, or a sort of parallel moral order. And that's why also uh, people get obsessed with the idea of the Ummah. Oh, Muslims think that they are part of a community called the Ummah. Well, Christians also, once upon a time, used the term Catholic to mean the universal community of the believers in Christ. And the idea of Catholicity, which is now applied to the Catholic Church, was initially meant to refer to this global community of brothers in Christ, which encompassed all the different traditions, all the different cultures that embrace Christianity. So um, I, I see a lot of parallels and I don't see any particular difference in the way in which Islamic uh, um, the, the Islamic religion uh, requires its adherence to be faithful uh, in a concrete manner to the tradition compared to how Christians are supposed to be faithful to their tradition. What the Pope is doing, Pope Francis is doing right now in his very frequent speeches is actually trying to resurrect this idea of applying um, be faithful to the Christian values in politics, in addressing concrete issues such as migration or unemployment or treatment of children. But there is a long way, I think, for the international community and for lawmakers and for policymakers to um, wake up to the notion of religion in a non-biased uh, um, way. Taking a cue from, you know, your response here, 
uh, we'll go to a more you, you spoke about migration we'll go to the more contemporary challenges that we're seeing today so let us either call it globalization in terms of migration or different ways in which you know today we are more or less a global world we have people from different communities of different faiths living together in a particular state a state sees its identity as a particular thing say for example one state looks at itself as a secular state but how uh, stable or how rigid can this identity be in the light of all these different variables that change the constituent people who form the state uh, can it be so rigid because understanding what french secularism for example was uh, and applying it to the 21st century seems like a bit of a mismatch uh, what do you think about that yeah i think you're putting the finger on a big um, concept that is <clears throat> you know many people in politics are studying the state what is the state is it the government is it the queen is it um, the citizens that make up the state is it the ministers Um, and as we are seeing by observing, you know, trends in European or Western politics, again, um, uh, the state is in crisis, um, in terms of being able to manage challenges from the economy to migration, to the environment, uh, to a more philosophical dimensions of what the state is about in terms of what kind of community does the state represent or protect, care for. And so the emergence of a number of right-wing groups of populism is a symptom of the fact that there is a crisis of the power of the state to help to hold things together. But there's also a crisis in terms of people don't know what is the identity of the country in which they live. These populist movements are trying to resurrect a mythical idea of, you know, Italian culture, Spanish culture, French culture, British culture, um, without, you know, realizing that first cultures are are never statics anyway. They've never been, and languages have never been static. So it's it's a misnomer to want to stop culture, to isolate it and crystallize it um, in a historical way. Um, so there is this uh, dimension of idealizing a culture, a tradition of the past that is cannot really be captured and standing still in time. And also, um, the we are really in this globalized world where it's impossible to solve things by yourself, individually, as, as a country. There are global challenges of, you know, access to water resources or of you know addressing again environmental pollution or things like that that uh, really need to be coordinated so by um, retrenching into nationalist visions communitarian visions um, protectionist attitudes of the economy or of national identity doesn't really help to address the issues that these groups are allegedly trying to stop because alone you can't really stop or you can't find a proper solution using your own resources. Particularly with the point of view of, uh, you know, Muslim political mobilization, uh, from what it looks like, uh, 
the threat could be very real because we are seeing radicalization as a reality in many western states but what we sort of also see is this vicious circle what happens is the policy indirectly probably targets a certain community in this case it could be mm-hmm. uh, islam as like or, or the muslims as a community when you stigmatize marginalized there is dissent dissent in itself could lead to extremism extremism could further pose different challenges and these challenges means further stigmatization and marginalization of the population so when such a vicious circle uh, exists and the state's identity is in a crisis uh, then what how, how does a state see itself through it or how could what could be the relationship between uh such complicated religious uh, paradigms and the state identity then oh there is states are unable to face global challenges and the also economic trends that are not that are dictated maybe by big corporations or uh, they cannot really stop global movements dictated by um again environmental transformations poverty uh, or wars um and in doing that states um lose the trust of their own citizens and this facilitates the uh, uh entrenchment of the citizens into group smaller groups and they they seek to identify w- with a mythical past or a mythical identity um to sort of to as a resort to protect them, themselves in given that the state is not doing a, um is not perceived to be doing um enough um the i think this is a a, a trend that is ongoing anyway mainly cause i think by the the growth of economic inequality in the world states are unable to provide fair jobs or to tax corporations and um we still have a you know the the global north and and the poor south so there are global dimensions of political economy that cannot be stopped by the state and in addition to this you have global population movements caused by war or poverty um where the states are unable to um intervene we see currently the Syria crisis states are unwilling or unable to stop the crisis because of the huge costs either way um and then there is the phenomenon of um terrorism and now we are experiencing a lot of terrorism coming from the traditions of Islam and and the phenomenon of terrorism is an additional layer of a problem that states and communities are facing and therefore um you have a sort of further radicalization of the right wing groups that are already angry because of inequality uh and economic matters that they see that there is also this other threat that there is more of a perceived as a cultural threat to their own identity I think what you were trying to say is that um state responses uh can sometimes make problems bigger than they are. Yes. Uh because states are unable to put an end to the Syrian war mm-hmm. 
and therefore are unable to put an end to the refugee movements, uh, are not willing, or they are willing, but they know that they would lose, you know, politicians would lose vote if they open the gates to the refugees and the migrants. So there is, you know, strategic calculations going on. And then uh, states, one of the key um, role of a state, if you take a Weberian understanding, is that the state has to be able to have a, to guarantee the security of its own citizens and has to be in control of the military and so on. So states feel that it is their duty to um, prevent counterterrorism and to intervene quickly when the phenomenon of terrorism emerges. Uh, on the one hand, because they want to really protect the citizens, but also because they want to be seen to be doing something and to regain the trust. Uh, and in doing this, they try in a way to appease their own supporters that lost the trust in the state. And they try to maintain law and order in the country. But by doing this, sometimes counterterrorism policies or migration policies can be um, over the top, can be brutal, can be aggressive, can lead to stigmatization. And this, in turn, creates fragmentation in society, perpetuates feeling, reciprocal feeling of hostility of, you know, the um, existing um, inhabitants of a country towards the newcomers or towards minorities. And then the minorities, see by seeing that they are not welcomed, by seeing that they are stigmatized, they then can nurture further feelings of distrust towards the majority community and this may lead them to find comfort and find a sense of community within the religious groups. So we now understand that it's it's in making decision, especially when it comes to uh, migration policies mm-hmm. and the after effect of whatever of that policy is, uh, is, is a whole lot of intricate web of other issues mm-hmm. uh, that are not religious per se. Absolutely not religious. <laughs> that is better, very little religious. Yeah. So, so how do you see? Um, how should we? How should state start um, to solve the problem of? I think the perception of of these the neg- negative perceptions that exist um, towards particular uh, religious group. Or do you think that's something that is should be left um, to the society uh, directly? Mm. I think if um, lots of practical issues about social justice, about social policies, uh, or employment were sorted, then there would be less competition, less hostility, less distrust between communities. Also, if you know, education was more supported and better funded, public, you know, state education, these would would bring up, uh, you know, future citizens that are uh, understanding of different cultures and are, with, you know, able and prepared to collaborate with each other. So I think there is a number of answers that can be found in addressing social inequalities in society that can then prevent, um, yeah, defragmentation of society. The issue of religion, I think, is is often um, an additional layer that um, 
serves to um, identify the other, but I'm not I'm not sure that that's the cause why um, there is hostility towards minorities. Um, because as I explained earlier, the the logic of religious values is pretty similar um, in in uh, across different traditions. And it's more that Western culture has forgotten what's the role or the purpose of religion, not only for the individual, but for uh, the coexistence of individuals in society. Um, so a, a challenge for the present time and for the future is how to um, operate within a plural religious system and how to not how to remove religion or not how to make one religion prevalent but how to enable understanding of different religious traditions and different communities how to develop the right language uh, to talk about religious identities about religious values on the in a way that is meaningful for individuals that enables them to um, make an impact in society, but also in a way that is not offensive of the other traditions. Mm. Um, so the, the problem emerges when you have competing claims mm. uh, between groups, uh, religious or non-religious, that, that see exactly the opposite in a particular... They see, you know, they have opposite perspectives on, on a particular manner. So it's very difficult for the state to ensure the equal and fair treatment of all the viewpoints. Um, and then in relation to religion and violence, I think if states have to maintain law and order and security for the citizens. So um, if states were or, you know, law enforcement agencies, whatever, the police, um, shed, are ready to shed the religious qualification when they see uh, violence. That might reduce tensions. That if they were ready to call in, this is an act of crime, full stop, not, you know, really Islamic crime or Christian crime, then um, this might still... This might reduce the discrimination and the sense of isolation of the communities that fall under that tradition. And also, at the same time, this will enable to still pursue the criminals and still do justice and sort of uproot the violent element from society. Does this necessarily mean that um, in order to control so to say, religion more in the society, they have to, state have to actually make it more institutionalized? Mm, that's another big debate that is going on. Um, there are institutionalized religions, Christianity and in particular Catholicism are the most institutionalized ones. Uh, Judaism is not institutionalized, but under Napoleon and then following the examples of Napoleon, many countries have uh, arranged devices of um, 
boards like the Board of Dep- Jewish Deputies in the UK, which uh, are meant to represent the Jewish community. So there have been attempts to in- artificially create religious institutions for those religious traditions that didn't have an institutionalized tradition. And they have worked well for some purposes, such as, I don't know, defining what is the, sh- the agreed uh, religious uh, date for a religious celebration. But they don't really resolve um, theological tensions and differences between members of the same tradition. Also, um, it's a bit... I don't think the institutionalization move is the right approach at a time when you have a a high level of ongoing secularization. So people lose, um, abandon the institutions. They may still be religious. I'm not saying that there is... The people are not religious. There is a high level of spirituality, and again, there are sociologists studying this. There is great spirituality, but uh, less um, institutional um, attachment to the institution and religion. So, if the state tries to uh, respond to uh, the needs of faith communities by institutionalizing that religion at a time when the community doesn't care for what the imam says or what the bishop says, that's not the right avenue to follow. So I think it's more um, a matter of, of, yeah, being willing to um, incorporate the language of religious values in politics, in, in society, and not being scared of um, those social uh, actors, civil society actors that are operating in the name of religion, work with them acknowledging each other's uh, limitations as well. Do you think the international community should somehow step in into this arena and maybe take the take the lead? Because we have the system of uh, international human rights mm-hmm. and we have uh, international, international courts which should promote and, and enforce human rights and uh, even the oldest human rights instruments, they they contain the the freedom of uh, religion but but um, as you um, described the for example the french secularism and the pushing the religion to the private sphere it actually seems to me that uh, this is what the international community does uh, european court and the judgment in laozi uh, versus italy Telling us that uh, that hijab is a is too active um, symbol to to have it in uh, in the public sphere. So so is it is freedom of religion a, a meaningful human right in 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 the uh, in the sense as we as we uh, know it now and uh, and and should the perception change also or maybe primarily at the international level to then maybe inspire the states. Um, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an expert of human rights, but for the segments that I follow in terms of freedom of religion and matters pertaining to the rights of migrants and refugees, what I can see is the system is no longer fit for purpose. The international human rights body was invented after the Second World War. It was meant to address a, a crisis mainly that was happening in Europe. Um, all the, you know, legislation about uh, um, protecting refugees 
was meant to protect white refugees <laughs> that somehow were either Christian or Jewish and it didn't consider all the other religions. Um, it uh, did not consider the mobility of people from outside Europe. It was more a rearrangement of opening borders within Europe to allow the flow of, you know, from Poland into UK, for instance, rather than um, considering that by opening the idea of refugee, you would then open the doors also for the Syrian refugees. Uh, in terms of human rights and religion, again, um, you know better than I do that, you know, this concept of freedom of religion is really a secular freedom of religion or a Christian freedom of religion in its origins. And again, it's not really fit for purpose to address the multiplicity of religious traditions that exist, not just Islam. Islam obviously is the prime example because Islam is the second largest uh, religious uh, faith in, in the world. Um, but so the, the, this system is not fit for purpose. And also you have uh, this situation of uh, competing freedoms where you're meant, according to this international law, to respect the religious freedom of, say, um, a traditionalist Christian that doesn't uh, um, support uh, gay relationships and at the same time you also support meant to support the rights of minorities including lesbian and gay communities so how can you simultaneously um, create a space that is acceptable and also create a modus of, of operandi that enables these communities to live side by side and interact even when they are actually um, uh, working uh, according to premises that are quite different, if not opposite. Um, so, and, and the same is, is true when it comes to, you know, uh, Muslim communities and freedom of expression. For some countries, especially in the north of Europe, freedom of expression, including satire, is sacrosanct. It's almost a feature of the identity of, say, the Netherlands or Denmark. So all the crises around the Muhammad cartoons have emerged because we have witnessed, um, even before the issue of, you know, suspicion towards Islam, there's been a, mis a reciprocal misunderstanding of what are the rights and the limitations of the rights of those as, that assert their freedom of expression and those that assert their the freedom of religion. So the assertion of freedom of expression through satire has been perceived as an attack on the freedom of religion of the Muslim community. And like, likewise, the fact that Muslim communities not, did not accept the satire was perceived as not accepting the idea of freedom of expression. So I, I think uh, I, I don't have the solution, but probably you guys, uh, the new lawyers and um, um, gray matter for uh, the field of law in the future, you have to come up with a solution to the uh, issue of religious pluralism. It's a great task. <laughs> the international community uh, is working with the system of international law and I've mentioned that debate that there is a, a system not fit for purpose. But you also have policymakers that 
work with policies, so in, in the field of politics, and not just with the laws. And so policymakers are trying to find responses or forms to uh, diplomatic ways to resolve conflict or potential tensions. And I've been privileged to be part of a series of discussions and platforms uh, with the UNFPA and with the State Department in the US and with the EU External Action Office, which have put in place workshops, internal discussions and informal networks of policymakers who are trying to uh, address this challenge of literacy, the need to develop a literacy around religion for policymakers, for diplomats, for civil servants, regardless of the field in which they work. So not to move away from the idea that the department that works on religious freedom should be dealing with religion, but to make sure that people working in different departments are still aware of the fact that religious values or religious mobilization may appear if you work in development issues, if you work with migrants, you still need to be aware of the fact that you have either issues about religion affecting communities that are receiving, say, development money, or uh, the religion is affecting Uh, is part of the identity of the migrants that come, but also to be aware that there are global actors, transnational faith-based movements that work for development and faith-based movements that work for refugees and for migrants. So these informal networks are really important because they are pioneering the new diplomatic language about incorporating religion. And... It's, it's a slow process because many of the participants in these informal meetings are themselves coming from a strong secularist view and they are very skeptical of talking to about religion to even accepting the fact that the UN could call for a meeting to discuss the relevance of religion in the work of the UN. That There is a lot of resistance, but there are also some very um, enlightened minds and charismatic figures that are driving this process. And I have been part of the academic community that has supported this initiative. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Silvestri, for that very, very insightful discussion. And uh, we are very sure that there were a lot of things that we actually wanted to ask you, but they automatically came from the response. So there yeah. were times where we were put at a spot about <laughs> what exactly to ask you. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for that very uh, informative uh, perspective on things and it was very useful. It will be very useful to us. Thank you so much. Um, Sarah, do you have any last note that you would like to share with us? Uh, politics is about power. And religion is also about power in that it empowers the individual, the community, with the moral values that should guide their own life. But also uh, the fact that many religious traditions have religious institutions also creates power, creates uh, pockets of power that can either compete with the state institutions or can actually be incorporated by the state to 
or by political actors, political entrepreneurs, political parties to support their views. So religion are not necessarily automatically about creating theocracies, but there is a risk that religions can can um, interact with politics and create theocracies or create stronghold, strongholds against existing political systems. So that's one of the reasons why there is a lot of debate around whether religion is, is a threat to the state or whether religion can uh, strengthen also the claims of a state.